The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center, Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the monthly Guest Dharma series. Well, it would have been pleasant to keep on sitting, but I suppose we're supposed to have a class tonight. Um, so I've titled this one. I think I'm going to change the title to Who's Afraid of Nagarjuna? <laughs> As in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Or um, Should Mahayana, Should Theravadans Be Afraid of Nagarjuna? And I brought along last week this book, Heartwood of the Bodhi Tree, um, by Buddhadasa Bhikkhu. And I understand that you had a link to some of the first chapters of it, which I reread this morning as well. Uh, but I marked some pages farther in the book that I really wanted to point to tonight. Um, and I want to explain to you where this, this whole thing um, comes from for me. I think that one of my fundamental theses about Nagarjuna, which is something that I think most Mahayanists would not agree with, is that Nagarjuna's thought really is going back to the sutta teachings of the Buddha um, after the, um, one might say, the detour of the Abhidhamma movement. Because Abhidhamma had become dominant in Buddhist circles by the time Nagarjuna was working. And uh, there, in this whole split between the, the Mahayana and the Theravada, what had happened in Buddhism in terms of the predominance of Abhidhamma philosophy and what the Abhidhamma schools were saying uh, is a lot of what led to the work that Nagarjuna and other early Mahayanists did on, uh, in the teachings on emptiness. So um, I think we have to spend a little bit of time just talking about Abhidhamma and what they were doing, though actually I hadn't thought I was going to do this tonight, but now I realize we do have to do it. Uh, Abhidhamma is the third uh, part of the canon. Uh, the, there's the three baskets, the Vinaya, the Sutta, and the Abhidhamma. Uh, and Abhidhamma, no one, everyone would agree that Abhidhamma is not the word of the Buddha, or virtually. I mean, anybody who studies this with not with a little bit less than total literalism, would agree that these are not the teachings of the Buddha. These were attempts to systematize what the Buddha taught. And it, it grew, a lot of it grew out of the very common practice of making lists of this, that, and the other. So Abhidharma literally translates as higher dharma. Um, Abhi has much of the same meaning as metta in metaphysics or meta-ethics or something like that. Uh, so it's in a certain sense once removed or um, at a more abstract level. And uh, what Abhidharma sought to do was have a classification system into which absolutely everything could be fitted so that you could take any phenomenon and uh, say it's made up of these particular Dhammas. The word Dhamma is used in Abhidharma literature in the plural 
uh, with a capital D and in the singular it means the teachings but the word is also used for uh, a phenomenon or a thing and what the Abhidhamma said it's very much like an atomic theory in chemistry that what we look at looks like a phenomenon but that's a very crude way of looking at things when you look at something what you really need to do is break it down into its constituent parts and then you're closer to actually knowing what's going on if you look at things the way they appear to us it's very deceiving and that's where we often go astray we're, de we're deceived by our sensory perceptions and the concepts we put on top of our sensory perceptions to know what's really happening what's really going on you have to break it down further than that so a very simple Abhidharma uh, analysis is that what looks like a person is in, in fact a collection of five skandhas but the Abhidharma school took it a lot further than that um, and they um, um, there are charts of charts of the various what I used to call atoms of experience when I would teach this material charts of the various dhammas that phenomena are made up of and a phenomena whether it's subjective you know whether it's inside or outside subjective or objective doesn't matter the same rules apply to all phenomena um, there are there were a number of Abhidharma systems but there are two whose literature survives to the current day one is the Theravada Abhidhamma uh, there are seven books in the uh, Pali canon that belong to the Abhidharma category um, and there was another collection of Abhidharma that was uh, current in India in a school that was called the Sarvastivadins Sarvastivadins it's just like it sounds S-A-R-V-A Sarvastivadins and what that means is um, everything exists very strange name but that's what the name means everything exists it was actually that school that the early Mahayanists were arguing with they probably did not know the Pali literature on Abhidharma but the, the enterprise is very much the same in the Sarvastivadins and in the Theravadins the enterprise the project is to find these um, little units that make up the bigger phenomena that we mistake for self and other <coughs> find out what those what those um, what those smaller units are um, the Theravada Abhidharma came up with 82 dhammas that there are 82 atoms of, exp of experience everything that we would ever encounter is made up of some combination or another of these 82 um, phenomena 82 dhammas and the Sarvastivadin had 75 uh, dhammas in it uh, this gets to be a very complicated and in a way a very theoretical enterprise Mark and I were talking about it before class and it, it's you know it's very complicated and in a certain sense very very theoretical uh, but Buddhists got really caught up in this enterprise of finding and classifying the dhammas and then looking at a phenomenon and saying it's made up of dhammas you know 2 3 10 22 35 etc the problem that came along was that the abhidharma systems one of the issues they were concerned with is what 
is usually translated as a real existent. That crude things, I don't like to say gross phenomena because I don't like to take my own name in vain. <laughs> crude things do not exist. They appear as if they exist, but they do not exist. In fact, I don't exist, you don't exist, we know that. Crude things do not exist, but the Dhammas, at least some interpretations of Abhidharma argue that the Dhammas do have true existence. Why, do they, why would we say they have true existence? Because you can't break things down any further. You can't make the analysis any more refined. And what Mahayanists were saying is, no, the Dhammas, it's not just that Crude phenomena are empty of existence. The, the dhammas of which crude phenomena are made are also empty of existence, of real existence. So whatever, whatever the Abhidhammas meant by this term real existence, that's what the Mahayanas were arguing with. They were saying the dhammas also lack real existence. The dhammas are also empty of inherent existence. Um, so far so good? Does that make sense? Yeah, could you give us a sense of, like, in terms of how, how many hundreds of years after the time of the historic Buddha, this discussion between the early Mahayanas and the uh, Abhidhammas? Yeah, the Abhidhammas. Uh, well, Nagarjuna's dates are um, somewhere between 150 and 250 CE. So then if we move the Buddha's dates about 100 years forward from what they're usually getting, given and having dying about 380, we're talking, you know, three, four hundred years. So, so in terms of development of Buddhist intellectual, Buddhist intellectual development, the Abhidhamma schools definitely predate early Mahayana. They definitely predate, and I think in many ways it's very hard to understand uh, early Mahayana, at least this side of early Mahayana, if you don't understand Abhidharma. And Abhidharma is not a very popular topic these days. I mean, you, you guys don't study it much either, do you? Well, uh, there's a couple of uh, contemporary Western teachers that pull from it in their teaching, but it doesn't look like the books. <laughs> <laughs> I study Abhidharma quite a bit because in many ways it's very, very useful, but it's very hard. Now, this, let me say one more thing and then I'll take your question. This term, real existent, what the Abhidhammists meant by it, I'm not entirely sure. Early Mahayana said the term means those things, um, that the, the, the early Mahayana said that the Abhidhammists were claiming that these things truly existed. But I think that they may have meant by the term real existence nothing more than a name. In other words, that this was a naming system but they weren't positing metaphysical reality to the dharmas. They were positing nominal reality to the dharmas. That's a very fine distinction, and a lot of people stumble on it, but this is part of what's at stake in the whole debate with early Mahayana. Yes? Is the basis for breaking things into all these parts more theory, or do they believe they've discovered this during meditation? Uh, both. There is a there is always a salvific, you know, because it's because we because we are because we mistake our perceptions to be real, we get into trouble. 
So this is a further analysis of how mistaken our perceptions are. And, you know, to, to truly understand how mistaken our perceptions are, usually meditation isn't enough. Some analysis is also very helpful. Um, you know, I think people can spend a lot of time sitting in meditation and not get very far if there isn't some pointing in the right direction, some analysis, something to contemplate. Um, and, you know, the Buddha certainly told his students over and over again, you know, if you think you exist, go find what exists. He didn't just say sit on your, you know, sit on your buff and count your breath. He said go find that thing which you think is you, that you think exists, and you'll, you know, you'll come up empty-handed. But you have to do that. You have to search for, you know, is it in the, that's really, you know, is it in the eye? Is it in the ear? Is it in the nose? Is it in the tongue? Is it in the skin? Where is that self that we so desperately cling to and, and love so much? So I really, for myself, I don't see a, that big a distinction between um, meditation and analysis in the service of, of finding out where we go wrong. So um, in any case, it is because of this category, the real existence in Abhidhamma, that early Mahayana um, said that's not correct. That's just not. Um, that's just that doesn't make any sense from a Buddhist point of view to say there's a real existence, that there's anything that truly exists. That just doesn't make any sense. Everything is empty of inherent existence. Period. So that's what early Mahayanas were saying, and very definitively saying. Um, I mean, Nagarjuna says that over and over so very, very clearly, that nothing has inherent or real existence. The Dhammas do not have real existence. Um, but <laughs> to me, that's also what the Buddha said. That's how I read the Pali Suttas. That's how I read the Pali Suttas. So what I'm going to say, or what I say about Nagarjuna, is that among other things, Nagarjuna was attempting to, uh, to go back to the Sutta teachings of the Buddha and short-circuit all the Abhidhamma speculation that was so rampant in his day, um, which would be, um, you know, a very interesting uh, proposition. So that's that's how I'm going to be interpreting Nagarjuna. That Nagarjuna really is uh, short-circuiting Abhidharma, which I think is once removed from the Sutta teachings of the Buddha, and go back more directly to the Sutta teachings of the Buddha. And I can demonstrate that very nicely with one of the few quotations that Nagarjuna does of another text in his book. Now. I got interested in this for many reasons um, because because I see Nagarjuna and the Pali Suttas as very much on the same page. I got very confused when I started to study uh, more closely with Tibetans, with Mahayanists. Because what Mahayanists say is that early Buddhism 
understood only the emptiness of self. They only understood anatman or anatta of self, but they did not understand emptiness of other or emptiness of phenomena. Um, so the Tibetans, the Mahayanists call that um, one-fold egolessness and two-fold egolessness. Two-fold egolessness is understanding that nothing has inherent existence. And one-fold egolessness is understanding that nothing in me has inherent existence. So Mahayanists make that distinction. And they say that early Buddhists only understood egolessness of self, but not egolessness of phenomena. Now, when I first started hearing that from Tibetan teachers, I was just scratching my head saying, that doesn't make any sense. Because my earliest, um, when I started studying Buddhism seriously in 1973, the first thing I studied very seriously was Rahula Walpola's book, What the Buddha Taught. And I learned an awful lot of my Buddhism from that book. And the other book I learned most of it from early on was Chögyam Trungpa's Cutting Through Spiritual Materialism. And I, you know, I read some poly, some poly texts, not a lot. But what the Tibetans were saying about what early Buddhists taught made no sense at all to me because it seemed very clear to me that in the Four Noble Truths and in every other basic teaching, nothing has inherent or real existence. It's not that it's just the subjective side of experience that lacks inherent existence, but the objective side of experience is somehow truly there. That didn't make any sense to me as what the Buddha taught or what was in the Pali text. It made no sense. So I've really gone after this issue because this is such a point of controversy between Theravadins and Mahayanists, and this is one of the points in which I think the Mahayanists may have been right about the Abhidharma, but they weren't right about the suttas. They weren't right about what they attribute to the Pali suttas, and of course by that time they weren't reading the Pali suttas anymore, so you know nobody goes back to them. Most of the Pali suttas did not make it to Tibet and were not translated into Tibetan. I think this is one of the places where in the modern world um, you know, Buddhists now can study with each other again, which wasn't possible even 200 years ago. And we could correct a lot of mistaken impressions that have come along just due to geographic and linguistic separation. So, um, you know, I have been teaching in a Mahayana establishment now for five years, teaching them basically that this is one point in which the Mahayanas they may have been right about Abhidharma. I'm not sure about that one way or the other because the texts are so difficult to understand clearly. But I think they clearly were wrong about the teachings that are in the suttas. So, and this is one of the passages I've worked with a lot. If you want to look at it later on, it's on page, um, let's see. page 58 of what the Buddha taught. Do you need more light? Um, a, little, a little bit would be good. 57 and 58. Well, on page 57, um, 
This is a quotation from the Dhammapada, which um, is in the fifth Nikaya, so it's not a really early teaching. But it, it claims to be a quotation from the Buddha. All conditioned things are impermanent. All conditioned things are dukkha. And then it says, the word for conditioned things is sanskara. And then, it, so it says, using the term sanskara, conditioned things, sanskara are impermanent, sanskara are dukkha. And then it says, dhammas are without self. It doesn't say sanskaras are without self. It says, dhammas are without self. Um, So this is what Rahula says, all sanskara conditioned things are without self. That's what the Buddha had said. Then one might think that although conditioned things are without a self, yet there may be a self, capital S, outside conditioned things, outside the five aggregates. It is in order to avoid misunderstanding that the term dhamma is used in the third verse. The term dhamma is much wider than sanskara. There is no term in Buddhist terminology wider than dhamma. It includes not only the conditioned things and states, but also the non-conditioned, the absolute nirvana. There is nothing in the universe, or in the universe or outside, good or bad, conditioned or non-conditioned, relative or absolute, which is not included in this term. And um, that seems to me to be a fairly definitive demonstration of um, the Sutta teaching on whether there is real existence anywhere. But um, I also wanted to refer you to this book, Heartwood of the Bodhi Tree, um, because this book, the author of this book, really very strongly wants to say uh, Theravadans should stop thinking that teachings on emptiness are Mahayana teachings and should reclaim them as genuinely Buddhist teachings. We shouldn't be afraid of the word emptiness. We shouldn't be afraid of, we shouldn't think that that's something that is Mahayana only. It is foundational Buddhism. The difference is that the, the term shunyata or sunata isn't used, I, I'm probably gonna switch to Sanskrit because then I won't mispronounce it so badly. Uh, the term shunya or shunyata isn't used that much in the Pali text but the meaning is definitely there. Uh, Heartwood of the Bodhi tree, the analogy is used over and over in the Pali texts, that you take, um, I think it's usually a plantain, you take a tree that looks like a tree, or a palm tree will work, you start peeling away the leaves, and there's no stalk, there's no trunk there. So you peel, peel everything away, and then there's nothing left at the middle that would be the stalk that holds it all together. Uh, a very simple analogy, a very clear analogy, used a lot in the polytexts, that reality is like a plant, everything is like a plantain tree. It looks as if there's a trunk holding it up, but when you start pulling that trunk apart, you find that there is, in fact, no trunk there at all. And that's how it is that things are sunna or shunya. Um, now, I, I don't know who, Buddhadasa didn't translate this. Was this Santikaro who chose the term? I, myself, he, he says the Buddhist teachings on voidness. 
I myself do not like the translation of void for sunnah at all because of the English connotations of void as nothingness. The reason people are so afraid of teachings on emptiness is because they don't know what the term emptiness means and it, every English translation basically connotes uh, blankness, uh, absence, negativity, uh, nothing that you care about, nothing that you think is important actually exists. And people get very afraid of that, of that term. Um, I prefer to just leave it in Pali or Sanskrit myself. I think it's a lot safer to teach people what the word means and then not use an English word at all. Uh, Mahayana translators have pretty much agreed on emptiness now as the translation. So that's what you would find in Mahayana texts. Um, but on page 59 of this book, and then on page 61, there are some very clear statements that uh, could have been just as easily written by a Mahayanist. But these statements, to me, very clearly prove that in contemporary Theravadan understanding, sunna is very much used the way Mahayanists would use it as well. But So this turns out maybe to be an issue on which Mahayanists and Theravadans have fought with each other a lot. And there's not much to fight about because fundamentally they're pretty much the same. Uh, first, sunnata, how do you say it, sunnata? Refers to the characteristic or fundamental nature of all things. Please concentrate on the fact that the character of all things is voidness. I'm going to use switch to emptiness. This phrase, all things, must be understood correctly as encompassing every single thing, both physical things, rupa dhamma, and mental things, nama dhamma. Everything from a speck of dust to valuable things to immaterial things up to nibbana, same thing that Rahula said. Each and everything has the quality of voidness, emptiness. This is the first meaning of sunnata. And then on page 61, he says, as it is, although all things are void, we see every one of them as not void. The mind is enveloped by defilement and ignorance, attaches to everything as being self, no matter what it is. Even a tiny particle of dust is regarded as the self of that dust. It is experienced as a second person which stands apart from ourselves. We are the first person and the second person is everything else. We label them as being this and being that, always seeing them as being permanent, independent entities, thus separate selves. So um, this is material that I can use and have used when teaching in Mahayana contexts to um, suggest that the whole Mahayana claim that early Buddhists only understood the emptiness of self but not of phenomena is simply not correct. Maybe that's what Abhidhamma said, but it's not what's in the, in the Pali suttas. So um, that helps explain why the Mahayanists have to, in their texts, cast them back into the time of the historical Buddha. Because it would be very strange if, you know, emptiness is such a fundamental teaching. It would be very strange, would it not, if this fundamental teaching were not around until 400 years after the Buddha? 
that would be very, very strange. Um, and what the Mahayanas are saying when they say that early Buddhists only had a very partial understanding of emptiness, that's, that's, a, you know, that's a pretty serious claim, that early Buddhists didn't really understand emptiness. They only understood it partially. It was only 400 years after the Buddha that we finally really understood emptiness. That's why in all of their texts, Mahayanas casts a scene in which the historical Buddha is teaching about emptiness to select disciples or advanced disciples or whatever, texts that were not brought into the human realm until 400 years later. Um, I told you, I've told you before about how the Mahayana story is that they were hidden among the Nagas because the Buddha realized that his human disciples weren't ready for these teachings yet. So, you know, to my mind, it seems that what happened is not what the Mahayanas say at all, but that for some reason we went into a kind of a detour um, called Abhidharma. And Abhidharma does have some real uses. It's just that when you get very fixated on it, um, and especially when you start looking for real existence, if that's in fact what they were doing, then um, you're starting to miss the point of, Buddhist, of Buddhism altogether, looking for real existence somewhere or another. So that's my way of introduction. Um, and then I'm going to work from a lecture I have in Nagarjuna. Are there any questions about, comments about what I've said so far? Not as anywhere nearly as much as I would like. I just I just wrote an article for Tricycle. I called it Buddhist to Buddhist, um, deepening self self awareness through. Well, I can't remember what the subtitle is. I could look it up, but it's about this very issue of Buddhists talking to each other across sectarian lines. And the point I made was that in India, when you look at Indian Buddhism. Obviously, they were talking to each other. In fact, monks of a Mahayana persuasion and monks of a mainstream persuasion often lived in the same monasteries. As long as they observed the same vinaya, they could live together. They didn't have to agree philosophically. And that, that happened a lot in India. And you just you read the literature of both schools, you can just see that they were talking to each other, influencing each other. But then, you know, gradually Mahayanas went north and started using Sanskrit and uh, mainstream mainstreamer Theravada Buddhists went south and used the Pali language. There was a geographic separation that became greater and greater. There was less and less contact. Um, then Buddhism died out in India by, by 1200 or so AD. It was, it was so they, everybody was separated from the Indian homeland. And uh, there just was very little talking to one another, if any. I mean, the situation got so bad that by colonial times in the 18th century, Buddhists didn't even know for sure where Bodhaya was, and it had become a Hindu temple. And it was really the British had a lot to do with figuring out that Japanese, Chinese, Sri Lankans, Tibetans all practiced the same religion. That had, and that it had originated in India. Someone told me, um, what's his name? Uh, someone told me very recently that 
Japanese Buddhists were surprised when they found out in the 19th century that there actually was a historical person behind their stories about the Buddha, that they didn't even think the Buddha was, was a historical character. Um, and but any memory of Buddhism had completely died out in India. It was like the, the, all the great the, all the great Buddhist uh, holy places had been grown abandoned and grown over, uh, covered with vines. Ajanta was completely unknown. Sanchi was covered, you know, just had been grown over with jungle. It was it's really quite interesting to study about how in the eight, in the 19th century especially, how much, you know, that curious, the British with their curiosity, how much they really helped us discover Buddhism behind Tibetan religion and Chinese religion and Japanese religion and Southeast Asian. It's, it's really fascinating. And so I, what I said in this article is that even though many people think this is a dark age, it could be a golden age for Buddhism again because it's now so easy for Buddhists to communicate across these traditional divisions. It's very, very easy. But do we? No. No. Not very much. So um, the whole article is about how to study how to study across tradition lines, what we're looking for and what we're not looking for. And what I'm doing here is a very good example of studying across tradition lines. Um, it's starting to happen. I might as well point this out now. I said last time, um, I'll point this, give you this book, um, the title of this book. Some Theravadans have now started to study Nagarjuna. And uh, David Kalupahana, who is a uh, Sri Lankan Buddhist scholar did a translation of Nagarjuna's major book and um, did a commentary on it. It's called Nagarjuna, the Philosophy of the Middle Way. And the author is Kalupahana. Uh, I have not read this book myself. Um, some of the people I trust don't think it's that good a translation, but I haven't read it. I don't know. But I think it's very, very interesting that a, that a Sri Lankan Theravada Buddhist scholar would put this much energy into studying Nagarjuna. And his claim is actually fairly similar to what I'm saying, is that Nagarjuna was mainly uh, trying to uh, to explicate the, the, the Pali Suttas, or one of the major Pali Suttas, that his whole philosophy is a commentary on one of the Pali Suttas, and that it is not uh, I do not think Nagarjuna is anywhere nearly as original in his thinking as most Mahayanists think he is. So why is it that until very recently uh, that break was there? Because Nagarjuna was one of the first major Buddhist thinkers to write in Sanskrit. He was from a Brahmin family, so he was brought up knowing Sanskrit, and he wrote in Sanskrit. And, um, you know the mainstream Theravadan schools couldn't study Sanskrit works. They only studied pretty much what was in Pali. So it seems that he was not studied that much um, because he was writing in Sanskrit. And I mentioned last week already my Tibetan teacher now teaching the Mahasatipatthana Sutta um, and wanting students to practice the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. That's a text that didn't make it to Tibet. And uh, many Tibetans don't have a 
they practice mindfulness, but they don't have a lot of, they don't know the term very well, and they don't know the really foundation texts for teaching on mindfulness. So that's a long answer to a simple question. Anything else before I start talking more directly about Nagarjuna? Actually, it's not, I don't have a question on Garza. I wondered if you could, what's your understanding about the difference between anatta and sunatta? Uh, I think the term sunatta is a little bit more all-encompassing. Anatta is, is, is used mainly to refer to the absence of any enduring reality subjectively. Whereas sunata is um, the absence of any existing reality period, self-existing, truly existing reality period. Sunata and patita samutpada are pretty synonymous. Um, in fact, the most famous line in the Garjana's whole book is patita samutpada is sunata. Pratitya Samut, you wrote in Sanskrit, so we'll do it in Sanskrit. Pratitya Samutpada is Shunyata. Where is it? It's in Nagarjuna. It's the most famous line in Nagarjuna's book, which I'm going to be going through. Uh, it's the most famous line. So if you understand Pratitya Samutpada, um, you should be able to understand emptiness and not be afraid of it, though. A lot of people are, nevertheless. I've been teaching a weekend program on, on the 12 Nidanas on Pratitya Samatpada. And then in the last talk, I say, well, OK, now you should also be prepared to understand emptiness. It's just a different term for the same set of teachings. And people go bonkers. They, they can't get it. Some people might not know Pratitya uh, Samatpada. Just talk about oh, <laughs> uh, in five words. Pratitya Samutpada, the uh, best translation for it is, I think, interdependence. That um, there is nothing that exists independently, and it's a, it's a way of demonstrating that we have causes and conditions, that things come into existence temporarily and then immediately fall out of existence, but they do not. Uh, exist over any in, in any enduring way. It's also translated as conditioned denesis and co-conditioned co-production and lots of things. But I think interdependence is the simple. It's not a direct translation, but it's the simplest. But um, you know, that's just three simple words. Interdependence is emptiness. We're going to find out that the, I think the whole problem with people with emptiness has been, it, it's much simpler, I think, than people often get it to be. So are we ready to go into Nagarjuna? As I've already said, um, Nagarjuna, the person, his dates are somewhere between 150 and 250 of the common era. Uh, and very little is known about him. Uh, he was from, he's usually said to have been from South India and from a Brahmin family, which means he would have converted to Buddhism. Uh, as a Brahmin, he would have learned classical Sanskrit. And one of my fort sources says he was the first important Buddhist thinker, one of the first important Buddhist thinkers to write in Sanskrit rather than in a vernacular. Um, 
Many works are attributed to him. If you got famous in the ancient world, everybody else tried to pass their book off as having been authored by, you know, you didn't want to be an original author. You wanted your book to have been written by a famous established author because then it would get read. So a lot of things were attributed to Nagarjuna. The only book that people, that all scholars agree uh, is definitely Nagarjuna's work is um, the Sanskrit title is the Mula Madhyama Kakarikas, and I'm not even going to spell that out for you because it's too long. I abbreviate it as the MMK. It means the fundamental verses on the middle way. And that's why his philosophy is so often translated as middle way philosophy. And so here we're back again to the classic foundational Buddhist teachings. Buddhism is the middle way. Uh, the book itself is very, very short. which I happen to think is a really reliable book on the, on the MMK. This is the root text. And then this is the explanation. And um, in, to my mind, the, the book is incomprehensible without a commentary. I wouldn't recommend trying to just go read the root text. For one thing, the Garjana is always putting words into his opponent's mouths, and you Without commentary, you can't even tell whether he's speaking in his own voice or in the voice of an opponent. So it gets very, very confusing. Um, in terms of, uh, if you ever, if you do want to read a little bit on it, I think this is the best book. It's by Jay Garfield, called *The Fundamental Wisdom of the Middle Way*. But unless you're used to reading fairly heavy philosophy, I wouldn't recommend starting with this book. Um, this book, he translated it from the Tibetan translation rather than the Sanskrit. Uh, it's a very good book because he, he goes through it verse by verse, almost word by word, and he contrasts and compares Nagarjuna to major Western philosophies. He also um, compares what he's doing with other translations, what other translators have come up with. He's very even-handed and fair in his comments about other people. So for you have philosophy background, right? For someone with philosophy background, it's a great book. I really, really recommend it. But for more of a training wheels approach to the Mulamak, to the MMK, uh, I recommend a book by a very, very good, very clear Tibetan teacher. The book is called The Sun of Wisdom, S-U-N, The Sun of Wisdom. And it's by Kempo Tsutram Gyamso, G-Y-A-M-T-S-O. He's a very, very clear teacher, and it's very well translated. It's not hard reading. And he doesn't go through everything. It's a training wheels kind of approach. He only goes through you know, some verses and some lines. He doesn't go through the whole text, but he hits the high points. Now, I'm going to be teaching this um, this winter to um, to the Sangha, the Lotus Garden students in the Midwest, uh, and this is the book I'm going to use with them for them. So uh, I, I do, if you do want to, even though it's by a Tibetan, I don't think there's anything that would be terribly 
problematic for anybody. It's a very clear, very simple book. Um, this work, the MMK, is so important to some schools of Buddhism that Nagarjuna is one of the few Buddhists who has been honored with the epithet Second Buddha. There are a few people. Nagarjuna, Padmasambhava has sometimes been called the Second Buddha. Uh, but very few people get that title. And the MMK has also been of great interest to Western philosophers. They've studied the MMK more than any other work of Buddhist philosophy. Um, now, this is key, I think. From the MMK, uh, one could not tell what school of Buddhism Nagarjuna belonged to, in my view. Mahayanas have claimed him as their own. I think there's just that natural. He was writing in Sanskrit, and a lot of later Mahayanas writing in Sanskrit picked up on him. But the text itself, I don't think there's anything in it that says he belonged to X school or Y school. And this was a point in time in Indian in Indian thought, Indian Buddhist thought, where there really wasn't, you know, a keen radical, complete split between Mahayana and mainstream. There was a lot of back and forth uh, influence. There is one article that questions whether Nagarjuna was a Mahayanist. Um, there is no mention at all of the Bodhisattva vow or the Bodhisattva path in the MMK. And that, to my mind, is one of the most distinctive new features of Mahayana Buddhism. Also, there's nothing in it that could lead you towards any, any uh, Trikaya theory, the three bodies of the Buddha, all the mythological Buddhas that are so important in Mahayana Buddhism. And those are the things that I think really separate Mahayana and Theravada. You don't see any of that in, um, in Nagarjuna. The Buddha he talks about is the historical Buddha, very clear. He's not talking about a mythological Buddha at all. Um, this is a sentence aimed more at Mahayanas, but I'm going to read it anyway. It is important to recognize that many of the teachings we popularly associate with Nagarjuna are actually much more generic than specifically Mahayana. He did not originate talk about emptiness, nor did he originate the tetralemma. The tetralemma is this phrase that occurs over and over in the Pali texts. It, does, it neither exists nor does not exist nor both exists and does not exist, nor neither exists, nor does not exist. These four logical possibilities, is, is not, both, neither. This was one of the questions the Buddha was asked most often, is what is the state of an enlightened being, of an arhat after death? And the Buddha always replied, nothing that you can't. It's not. It, you can't say it is, is not, neither, nor both. He always answered that question in the same way, which is, you know, it's like a koan. You try to wrap your mind around it, and your mind doesn't wrap. That's the intent. That there is no, there is no conceptual, logical way of getting at that 
point. What is, it's like saying, what is the nature of the mind? Now, this is a story I like to tell. I, I often tell this story, especially to Mahayana audiences. That uh, There's a conference in Chicago. I think it's every year. There's a conference on women and Buddhism in Chicago. And um, they were they always have a you know a topic. A conference always has to have a topic. And they had one year they decided that their topic was going to be emptiness. That they would have a conference on emptiness. But some of the Mahayanists objected that this wasn't going to be fair to the Theravadins because they wouldn't have anything to say about emptiness. It was a purely Mahayana topic, and they were very you know Theravadins didn't have any trouble at all talking about emptiness. I always think that's such a such a really funny story. What Nagarjuna did do, and I think I think there are things about Nagarjuna's work that are, are very, very important and that are not found elsewhere. What he did was an incredibly thoroughgoing examination of what emptiness entails. And entails here is the key word. Incredibly thoroughgoing examination of what emptiness entails and put it in a logical, systematic frame format that was new and unique. What emptiness entails has never had never been so thoroughly spelled out. And this is the main contribution of his work. So, um, any questions or comments? So, I've got eight points um, that I think if you take down these eight points, you've got the beginnings of a good grasp of Nagarjuna. Um, one, in the Pali text, the Buddha is often represented as saying, when asked about the state of existence of the Tathagata or any enlightened being after death, that nothing could coherent could be said, that such a one neither existed nor did not exist, nor both nor neither. Thus, the tetralemma often employed by Nagarjuna originates in the Pali text, not with him. Um, this, was, this was a great moment for me. I've started now, when I teach, most of the time I try to find a story in the, in the Pali Suttas to begin my teaching with, which for uh, a Tibetan, somebody who's teaching in the Tibetan tradition is pretty unusual. Uh, and so I was looking as I was preparing to, um, you know, preparing to do a major teaching on the Garjana last summer, I thought of a, of a text uh, that I've come across over and over. Um, when I'm studying the Pali Suttas. One of the places where it's found is this marvelous anthology in the Buddha's words. Um, At Savati, the venerable Kachana Gota approached the Blessed One, paid homage to him, sat down to one side, and said to him, Venerable Sir, 
It is said, right view, right view. In what way, venerable sir, is there right view? And this is the Buddha's reply. This world, Kachana, for the most part, depends upon a duality, upon the idea of existence and the idea of non-existence. But for one who sees the origin of the world as it really is with correct wisdom, there is no idea of non-existence in regard to the world. And for one who sees the cessation of the world as it really is with correct wisdom, there is no idea of existence in regard to the world. This world, Kachana, for the most part, is shackled by engagement, clinging, and adherence. But this one with right view was, does not become engaged and cling through that engagement and clinging, mental standpoint, adherence, underlying tendency. He does not take a stand about myself. He has no perplexity or doubt that what arises is only suffering arising, what ceases is only suffering ceasing. His knowledge about this is independent of others. In this way, Kachana, there is right view. All exists, Kachana, this is one extreme. All does not exist, this is the second extreme. Without veering toward either of these extremes, the Tathagata teaches the Dhamma by the middle. With ignorance as condition, we're going to go through the 12 Nidanas now. With ignorance as condition, volitional formations come to be. With volitional formations as conditions, consciousness, and then the dots. So we're not going to repeat the whole thing. Such is the origin of this whole mass of suffering. But with the remainderless fading away and cessation of ignorance comes cessation of volitional formations. With the cessation of volitional formations, cessation of consciousness, etc. Such is the cessation of this whole mass of suffering. That's from the Samyutta Nikaya. Um, Pardon? Uh, it's page 356 and 7. I'm sure you all know about this. This is a really wonderful book. I've, I've, one year, <laughs> this is really great. One year I made all the students at Lotus Garden buy it. And everybody, well, Rinpoche thought it was so cute that I had my students reading um, stories of the Buddha. So I thought, well, that's the text I'm going to we're going to use as like this is this is what this is the kind of thing Nagarjuna was saying but in the Pali Suttas so can you imagine how happy I was when I was studying the the MMK and that was the text Nagarjuna in fact based himself on I, you know like that was a happy day that was a very happy day um, it's in chapter 15 of the MMK, and I'm going to uh, read the translation from uh, Jay Garfield. This, this is Nagarjuna's words. The victorious one through knowledge of reality and unreality in the discourse to Kachayana, using the Sanskrit name, refuted both it is and it is not. And I've left a few things out. To say it, quote, it is, is to grasp for permanence. To say, quote, it is not, is to adopt the view of nihilism. Eternalism, nihilism, the two philosophical positions that Buddhism is always trying to 
find the middle way, which is actually very hard, not straying into eternalism, not straying into nihilism. Very hard. To say it is is to grasp for permanence. To say it is not is to adopt the view of nihilism. Therefore, the wise person does not say exists or does not exist. Whatever exists through its essence cannot be non-existent is eternalism. It existed before but doesn't now entails the error of nihilism. Actually, I misled you when I said I was starting the eight points. That was still a preamble to Nargarjuna's thinking. Now I'll start the eight points in Nargarjuna. And I think, um, I think this is the main one. I'm going to read from my notes. Uh, obviously, the first thing we need to do is get some clarity on the term emptiness, or uh, Santikaro would have used voidness here which in my view is not as difficult as most people think. The basic meaning of the Sanskrit term is lack, L-A-C-K, lack. That something is not there. That's what the Sanskrit term, the Pali term means, something's not there. The question is, what's not there? What's not there is independent existence. So that's why Nagarjuna and other people were saying the Abhidhamists are crazy if they assert that there are real existence. Because that's impossible. It is utterly impossible that anything could have independent existence or real existence. And that, that was the argument. Now, as I've said, whether they were Interpreting the Abhidhamists correctly is another question, but the Abhidhamists did use the term svabhava, or real existence, in their texts. Um, what's not there, if we want to really keep straight, strict to the language, what's not there is svabhava, which is translated as own being, or independent existence. The Tibetans have a very good way of translating this into English. It exists from its own side or it exists uncaused, or it has an essence. What's lacking is independent existence, inherent existence, existence by itself or from its own side, essence, something that is always that always was and will be without change. None of these things are actually present in anything. That, in a nutshell, is all that the teachings of emptiness amount to. They're not very hard in a certain way intellectually. They're very hard psychologically. Very, very hard psychologically to actually give in to the fact that nothing exists the way we think it does. That's the rub. Things don't exist the way we think they do. And that would seem to be something that you can think your way to. You can contemplate your way to it, though. You can contemplate. See, there's a difference between discursive thinking and contemplation. And that's uh, that's a technique, at least that I use a lot when I when I teach. 
the people. Yeah, if you're just if you're just working with sheer discursive thinking, it's like it goes so much against the grain of our everyday sense perceptions and the way we've been trained yeah. from day one. And it takes, you know, but if you just keep contemplating, well, do uh, are things really the way they seem to be? Eventually, you come to say, no, they're not the way they seem. They're just not the way they seem to be. So you're saying in a way that opening, opening yourself to that, so it's the possibility of changing your brain, opening the door of it again to your brain. Yeah, it does. In some way, that allows other things to come. It's not helping. It works. It's slow, but it definitely, you know, it definitely works. I don't think you get there just by, you know, developing a lot of shamatha. Um, you have, this is a place where, where, at least in the Tibetan tradition, we'd be using a lot of vipassana or analytical meditation, which is actually, you know, working the logic and thinking, contemplating, is this so? That, you know, the most famous koan of all is, what is this? which I think is the fundamental question we're always working with. What, what is the case? What's going, what's going on? How are, th- how are things actually? Yes. It, just, it seems to me that we accept the idea of interdependence, complete independence of all phenomena, mm-hmm. um, and we also accept the idea of impermanence mm-hmm. of all phenomena. Exists now, does not exist now, does not exist now. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you accept those two things, and those two things don't seem to me to be that hard to accept logically. <laughs> logically, or, then. Or from experience. Um, if you accept those, then it doesn't seem to me that this is such a big jolt. No, it's not. It shouldn't be a big jolt, but it is to most people. And partly it's the word emptiness. People have said, well, you know, even the Dalai Lama and Thich Nhat Hanh have said, well, maybe we should say interdependence instead of emptiness. But I think that in, in San, Sanskrit, for sure, I don't, you know, can't do Pali, that the, the word had a certain, it has a certain shock value. And I think that shock value is deliberate because I think it's very easy to say, yes, I understand that everything is impermanent. Uh, yes, I understand that. It's very easy to say that, but not to get it emotionally. And then we're still shocked when things change. You know, we still <laughs> we're still shocked when something important changes that we didn't want to change on us. If we really understood emptiness, we'd never be shocked by change. You know, so um, we will listen to people on the television. I'm thinking of a, of a commercial for MSNBC where one of their people is saying, I never thought that this could happen to my country. <laughs> well, or, um, you know, anytime we say, why me? Why me? That's not understanding emptiness. So um, none of those things are actually present in anything. The implication of, of that is that things are not real in the way they take them to be 
in our everyday perceptions and con conceptions or real in the way we impute them to be in our belief systems. Things, especially our emotions, views, and identity, feel so real to us that it's hard to comprehend that they are empty of that level of reality, of being really real because of their interdependence. The obvious fact is that everything is interdependent and nothing exists by itself, but the implications of that fact are very difficult for us to take in. We want things to have more reality than they could possibly have if we recognize their interdependence and therefore their relativity. We want absolutes, but absolutes and interdependence do not mix together well. In fact, they don't mix at all. This is why, you know, um, there's the raft parable, that even something like the Four Noble Truths, clear as these teachings are, helpful as these teachings are, are not to be clung to. Um, Nagarjuna proves that even the Buddha is the result of interdependent arising and not anything uh, more profound than that. Yes? You said, uh, instead of using the word, why me? The first thing that came to my mind is that this is my karma. That's much closer to understanding emptiness. If, you, if we truly, truly, Westerners have a lot of trouble taking that in, though. Uh, you know, one of the most commonly asked questions is um, something like. I don't understand karma when it means that um, a child is born uh, with some major problem. And one of my, te my teachers responded, it's not that you don't understand the teachings on karma, it's that you don't like them. Another point that comes up that's very um, odd to me or really makes me study more is that I read a lot of books uh, in my 20s and 30s by like Rollo May and uh, Theodore Isaac Rubin and so forth. And the term entity was, was brought up in those books in a terribly different way. Very different way. Very different way. Mm -hmm. and, and I began to learn it in the Buddhist way. Mm -hmm. but, not mm -hmm. but, um, but that's why the teachings on emptiness have to be brought up very carefully. And I think that, I mean, this, I, I know many people who, you know, many Mahayanas who are really supposed to, I mean, they're supposed to believe in emptiness, so they really try to get it. And they're, they're terribly confused about it because this, you know, this explanation, it means something's missing. Something's not there. What's missing? Independent existence. That's such a simple explanation. But I've heard major teachers fumble around and not be able to say it that clearly. I've never understood why why it you know it seems so so clear, so simple, but I, I have heard people 
stumble around trying to explain it. And if I didn't already know what they were talking about, I couldn't have figured it out from what they were saying about emptiness. Okay, so what's often hard for people to get is that the emptiness of things does not mean that they are not there or that they are non-existent. Emptiness, this is a very simple sentence, emptiness does not equal non-existence. And that, the first time most people hear that, it just goes, <laughs> they just don't get it. And last, last winter I was teaching four truths at a, at a Shambhala center, and I, I talked about um, things not existing, because to exist means to exist permanently without causes, without change. And somebody just kind of blew up and said, I don't see why you define existence in that complicated way. Existence just means things are. And well, this person just wasn't thinking clearly. Because um, you tell most people things don't exist. That's one of the most confusing teachings about Indian religions. And Hindus say much the same thing. Things don't exist. Things don't, really, don't truly exist. And people say, then how come my car got crashed if it doesn't exist? Um, emptiness does not equal or mean non-existence. Um, one of the teachers said, if that were, you know, if, if emptiness simply meant non-existence, this is why I don't like the translation void. If emptiness simply meant non-existence, making things empty would be easy. Call in the moving company, move everything out of the room, and then the room is empty. Emptiness doesn't mean empty that all the chairs and, and um, cushions are gone. The room is equally empty whether there are cushions and chairs in it or not because um, there's nothing that truly exists. The Mahayanas have a very good way of putting this together. They say things are empty and nevertheless they appear. So we talk a lot about emptiness and appearance. And I think that's a very, very good way of putting it. Um, we are taught frequently to contemplate that everything we encounter is a dream and an illusion. That's what it means to say they appear, the way things appear in dreams. So things exist, they appear. Um, things exist conventionally pretty much the way an unconfused ordinary perception puts things together. What's lacking in our conventional perspective is the thoroughgoing complete, fearless knowledge of everything entailed by the fact that these conventionally existing things are empty. Garfield says it well. Inherent existence is an incoherent notion. Isn't that just so, so short and simple? Inherent, inherent existence, independent existence, is an incoherent notion. The only sense that existence can be given is a conventional relative sense. If you say something exists and you're utterly clear that that's 
meant in a conventional relative way. Okay. And in demonstrating that phenomena have exactly that kind of existence and that dependent arising has exactly that kind of existence, we recover the existence of phenomenal reality in the context of emptiness. That's uh, Nagarjuna's right, uh, not Nagarjuna's writing, Garfield's writing. That was point two. Point three, it is also hard for people to understand that if things had essence or inherent existence, things couldn't change. And therefore, enlightenment would not be possible. So it's only emptiness that makes enlightenment possible. People resist emptiness and relativity because they hear these words as undercutting standards and trivializing things. And people often do make that mistake. If everything is empty, it doesn't matter what I do. People make that mistake a lot. We often say that, some, that we often think that saying something is absolute gives it ultimate importance. There's a word missing here in my notes. Things can only have greater or lesser relevance, but not absolute relevance if you understand what it means to claim that something is absolute, that it truly exists. If you want to suppose that there is some particle of things that truly exists, then the Buddha's instructions would be, go find it. Those were his instructions many, many times. Go look for the self. Is it in the, you know, I've gone through those. Is it in the eye? Is it in the ear? Is it in the nose? Where is that self? Point number four, um, the soteriological aspects of these teachings. Cognitive errors fuel grasping, and grasping causes suffering. It's very simple. Because we think things truly exist, which is a cognitive error, we grasp. Because we grasp, there is suffering. The leading cognitive error is to impute inherent existence onto conventional existence, which we do all the time. We impute inherent existence onto conventional existence. But point five, we're going to get now into um, some statements directly from Nagarjuna. Uh, chapter 24, if you're ever going to read just one chapter and study it of the MMK, it would be chapter 24, and particularly verse 18 of chapter 24, um, in which Nagarjuna says,
chapter 24 is called Examination of the Four Noble Truths. And this is um, the proof that the Four Noble Truths are not to be taken as absolutes, as is taught in the Raft Parable as well. Um, Verse 18 and 19, many people consider these to be the heart of the text. Whatever is dependently co-arisen, that is explained to be emptiness. That, being a dependent designation, is itself the middle way. Something that is not dependently arisen, such a thing does not exist. Therefore, a non-empty thing does not exist. What it, this, I've, I've given it to you in three words. Pratitya Samapada is Shunyata. Here in the text, this is the famous line. Whatever is dependently co-arisen, Dependently co-arisen is translating Pratitya Samutpada. That is explained to be emptiness. Emptiness is translating Shunyata or Sunyata. So dependent arising is emptiness. And then he goes on to say, those very words are a dependent designation. They're not absolutes. And that's what makes them the middle way. And then he goes on in the next verse to say it even more clearly. Something that is not dependently arisen, such a thing does not exist. Therefore, a non-empty thing does not exist. Now, um, that was point five. Point six therefore if we've followed, if we've tracked thus far, emptiness is not something different from phenomena, but a profound way of viewing or understanding phenomena viewing them as interdependently arisen so that we don't invest so heavily in them because we understand their true nature. This is what allows us to see phenomena as dreams and illusions. Or, uh, Scarfield put it somewhere, what's a dream and an illusion is not the phenomenon itself, but the ultimacy we impute onto them, the seriousness with which we take them, our partners, our children, our careers our health, our illness, the seriousness with which we take all these things. That's the dream and the illusion. Now this is, why is this important? Because when people start really taking emptiness seriously and trying to you know, understand it or find it, they often look for emptiness as something different from this. There's this, and then there's 
emptiness, and I've got to find emptiness somewhere. I've, I've known transmitted Zen people who are still looking for where is this emptiness, who hadn't, they were, and they were wearing the brown robes. They, were, they had been transmitted. And then they said, oh, I finally got it, that emptiness is not someplace else. Emptiness is this. Isn't this couldn't be anywhere else. It's this. Yes, among other things. So it is very important to realize that emptiness is not behind or under phenomena, but right there, coextensive with phenomena. The big mistake people make about emptiness is trying to find it or find out what it is as something more than phenomena. That's a very common mistake. Um, and that's what leads many people to think that if, if, if I understood emptiness, then I would not see phenomena. No, I wouldn't attribute the kind of importance to them that I do. I wouldn't take them as seriously as I do. I wouldn't get upset when things don't go my way. That's what it would mean. So point number seven. Um, what I've just been talking about is called the emptiness of emptiness, which is a term. I don't know of that term. I've never seen it in a, in a Theravada mainstream context, but it's used a lot in Mahayana contexts. The emptiness of emptiness keeps us from thinking that there's you know, phenomenon A, phenomenon B, phenomenon C, and then there's emptiness. Because we don't, that, that's, a, that's a mistake. Emptiness and the phenomenal world are not two distinct things. Rather, they are two characterizations of the same thing. Everything, and this is the most profound uh, Buddhist teaching on equality. Everything, no exceptions, is equal in that it shares being dependently originated, empty, and a verbal confession, convention. Everything is equal because everything is equally dependently arisen, empty, and a merely verbal convention. And then uh, point eight, we will get done tonight, so we'll have to discuss what to do next week. Uh, the other text from Nagarjuna that I really want to point out to you, which, which I think is very, very beautiful, uh, is the ending statement. The very last verse reads, I prostrate to Gotama. So we're, you know, historical Buddha, no uh, Dharmakaya, Sambhogakaya Buddhas. I prostrate to Gotama, who through compassion taught the true doctrine which leads to the relinquishing of all views. I prostrate to Gotama, who through compassion taught the true doctrine which leads to the relinquishing of all views. 
the raft parable comes back again. <laughs> I find this very amusing. I think the verse is very clear, but there is a controversy over how to interpret this verse. Some claim that he meant you should only relinquish all false views. <laughs> that doesn't make sense. It would contradict all the material in all forms of Buddhism on the dangers of view cherishing and the pitfalls of ideology. It would also contradict the raft parable. Um, of course, as a path factor, one wants to cultivate relatively helpful rather than harmful views. No one debates that, but that's a path that's a path factor. That's not a realization factor. Okay. Um, there's one more point to make, um, and there's one minute left, so might save that point for next week. Uh, we have one more week to go, and I don't have a full plan because I didn't know how long it would take us to get through this material. But I thought I might do my lecture on what I think really was happening in the um, split between Mahayana and Theravada. I've done that here before, but it's been a number of years since I did it. So if people here have all heard that material before, uh, let me know so I don't redo that. Otherwise, I think that might, would think that would be a useful. Yeah, and one thing, to, I'm sure you're going to cover it anyway, but just uh, we had uh, Roger Jackson talk about uh, metta as a theme throughout you know, Buddhist history and different Buddhist schools. And obviously, that's, you've mentioned that already about that emphasis on compassion and the bodhisattva ideal in the Mahayana. So that might be something you could bring in, just talking about how metta is used, how it has been used, compassion, love, in the tradition, how it's different. That might be a, an additional piece. That might yeah, be well, I think, I think that the puzzle of where this bodhisattva vow idea came from is because the historical Buddha certainly didn't teach it. That's a that's a very a very big puzzle, and I've worked on that a lot. Because behind, you know, Mahayana basically say there are three things wrong with with quote Hinayana. One is that um, there isn't enough, there isn't a very developed notion of compassion, which is not the case if you study the Pali Suttas. Um, they only understood the egolessness of, of self, but not the egolessness of phenomena in general, which is obviously clearly not the case. And what's the third one? Those are the two big ones that they say. Um, so it's 8.32 now. I can take a few minutes for comments and questions on what I've just talked about, and then I'm going to get on the road. Because you, you could follow this, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's the way I teach it, you can probably get it intellectually fairly easily. Don't get fooled into thinking you've got it because you've got it intellectually. It's, uh, it's very subtle, and it really, I mean, it really changes. It changes a lot when you get it at a deeper level. Yes? So I'm just wondering, is this, are you reading for a PowerPoint or some other document that you'd be willing to distribute? Not at this point. Not at this point. Um, uh, the, what you can do, 
how would we do this? These these teachings, when I gave them at Lotus Garden, were recorded, and they are. I am I am allowing people to have recordings of the teachings, but um, I don't sell them. There's if you if any people are interested in getting the recording, let me know and I'll figure out a way. I guess I could just pirate my own copy of my disc. <laughs> Um, but I'm, you know, I'm eventually hoping to uh, get a book out of this. And since some of this is the result of very hard work I've done, I don't want somebody plagiarizing me before I publish it myself. Yes. Is emptiness not being different from Penalvo? The same as the parts that you're saying. That's, yeah. Yeah, well, the Heart Sutra, it's very, the Heart Sutra is so important because it's such a succinct, short statement about all of this stuff. The Heart Sutra is actually a very late text. Um, it is said to be from like the 7th or 8th century CE. Um, so it, it distills and pulls together a lot of previous teaching but um, you know that would be another option if any the people here you, you're a Zen are you a Zen student? I am okay that's why you know the Heart Sutra so people here studied the Heart Sutra? well I think it's just around you know these days we a lot of people have you know they may settle eventually in one of the centers but you know I don't know 50% or more people have sort of Tried out the different centers and yeah, and even gone to retreats. You know, some Zen retreats, some retreats mm -hmm. that have possibly teachers. So there's quite a lot of mixing, I think. Okay, more than maybe it's the Tibetan-inspired ones that are so it's off on their own corner. Yes. I was going to say, I mean, I think that maybe some of it is difficult because I think what happens a lot in the West now is that there's such a mix. When there's commentaries upon commentaries and people that are pulling their own fusions together, there's views and people aren't coming generally, I think, all over the set place. It's almost difficult to understand some of the different fire points of the different places that people come from. Because certainly, um, the Vajrayana groups tend not to mix that much with um, with other groups. So, if, is there any consensus or any other requests for what to do in the final week? Yes. Well, I'd like to finish the eighth one with a little more detail, and actually, uh, that can allow me to say if there is actually something new in the Heart Sutra teachings, what it is. And then we could discuss whether what I see is something new in the Heart Sutra over what's in the, in the suttas. Then we could discuss whether that material is also found in a Theravada tradition somewhere. So that might be, maybe what I should do to make sure everybody has it is figure out a way to um, Email you a copy of the Heart Sutra. Well, I can, I can send it out to you. Okay. Okay. Digitally. Digitally, so that people, so that we can have a copy of the Heart Sutra in front of us for next week. Is there a particular translation you'd like to use? I mean, if you have a particular translation, maybe send it to me, and then I'll get it out to everybody. Yeah. Um, 
Well, I'd like to use the ones that I'm, the one I'm most familiar yeah, no, with. Then set it to me and I, that way it will be consistent. Okay, so I think we should now conclude at this point. Thank you again for coming. We'll see you next week once more.